to say, oh, recycling costs $10 more than trash, so I'm going to go to recycling, when the reality is, you know, the, the asthma rates and the cancer and the impact on wildlife and all of these issues that happen when you throw a material in a, in a landfill or incinerator, they're not reflected in that tip fee that you're paying, but the community is paying that cost and people calculate those costs, you know, and it's, it's exorbitant. Recycling is essentially dead. I mean, it really is. Recycling was never a good solution. We are now realizing all of the problems associated with it. I mean, there's a reason why they call themselves either waste to energy or energy from waste now instead of incinerators, because it's a much more sexy term. It sounds like, oh, man, we're getting some energy out of this stuff I threw out. That's great. And anyone within those industries who try to push this idea that they're renewable energy is bullshitting you. This is one of my favorite orchestral pieces. It's called The Swan by Saint-Saëns. My grade school cello teacher used to say that the best way to listen to this piece is to imagine a peaceful swan sitting far in the distance on a lake. Imagine the bird is just a speck on the horizon. The beginning is calm and unexpecting, as a distant swan would be. But as the song goes on, the music swells and becomes grander as the swan approaches you and becomes more in view. By the end, you realize that underneath that smooth exterior is something powerful and dynamic. The swan is actually nothing like you once thought. What was once an unassuming speck now has detailed feathers, a sharp beak, a curved neck. It's a completely different beast. Today, we are going to take a break from focusing directly on Chester, and we're going to investigate the facade of the waste disposal industry. What you'll find is that we treat the American waste industry like a swan. It seems pretty simple and harmless on its surface, but the closer you get to it, the more catches your eye. I'm David DeMarco, and this is Chester is Rising. When you think of waste in America, your mind probably floats to one thing, a trash can. For most, the trash can is the fullest extent of our relationship with waste. You toss it in, maybe if you're at home, you bring it to the curb, and boom, waste managed. Thinking of a trash can in this way is like thinking of a swan as just a speck on the horizon line. We are so far removed from the entire waste process that we can mistake this tiny bin as the main way we handle nearly 300 million tons of waste each year. Naturally, this is just not the case. A lot goes into processing American waste, and until recently, it wasn't even happening here. Despite what you might think, given the array of blue and green waste cans peppered across the country, the U.S. has not been the leader in processing its own waste and plastics. For decades, the U.S. actually sent its recyclables to China, whose bursting manufacturing industry was hungry for raw materials. This trade made recycling in the U.S. very profitable for a while, until the whole operation was chopped. In 2013, China passed a policy called the Green Fence, 
which launched intensive inspections of imported materials, checking for contamination and illegal activity. The policy grew over the course of five years until February of 2017, when China passed a policy called National Sword. At first, National Sword didn't do much to disrupt trade. It mainly focused on curtailing illegal imports. However, by the end of 2018, National Sword sharpened to the point of effectively banning the import of plastics from the U.S. This delivered a devastating blow to the U.S. waste system. With their top buyer out of the picture, prices of materials dropped dramatically, and what was once a profitable industry completely changed. I spoke about National Sword with Alex Danovich, an environmental consultant for Nothing Left to Waste, a group that helps communities cut back on waste and become more sustainable. He currently works with Swarthmore University to implement sustainable waste reforms. I asked Alex why National Sword happened when trade was so profitable. China was in this position where they had very cheap, inexpensive transportation from the U.S. back to China. That kind of exploded so fast, you know, to where we were sending 50, 60 percent of our recyclables to China. I think at one point, waste paper was the, the largest export in the U.S. by volume. Really? Yeah. Containers and containers of it every day. The quality of the material was getting pretty dirty, you know, up to where it's like 20, 30 percent of what was going over there was non-recyclable items buried in the bales as recycling. But China was buying it so cheaply that, you know, they kind of just turned a blind eye to it and continued to consume it. A couple of things happened in China, though, is was really driven by the middle class, this huge growth of middle class in China in demand for better air quality, better environmental policies. There was a documentary called Plastic China that came out that I think was really embarrassing in terms of, you know, exposing what was going on in terms of the amount of trash that China was importing from the U.S. And I think that the the other piece of it was China was saying, hey, we have now this huge middle class. We have these consumers in our own country. We should be able to get these recycling commodities from better recycling programs domestically that they hadn't really invested in. So all of that together led to National Sword, which is where they put very strict contamination limits on anything that was allowed to be exported to China. These limits on contamination were effectively a ban for the United States. Contaminating materials could be many different things, such as unclean jars of peanut butter or unwashed cartons of milk. These materials are typically recyclable, but since they weren't clean before disposal, they can't be processed normally. Since the U.S. processes its recyclables in mass, non-recyclable materials that find their way into the waste stream, such as slices of pizza, can contaminate whole piles of waste. The level of contamination in a pile of waste is called its residual rate. So if 5% of the materials are contaminated, the pile of waste has a 5% residual rate. Recyclables that Americans produce are extremely contaminated compared to other countries. And it's not due to any external factor. It's our own fault. When recycling started in the U.S., we had what's called a multi- or dual-stream recycling system. This meant that consumers would separate their recyclables into multiple different bins at the curb, one for glass, paper, plastics, etc. Now, we have single-stream, where we just have one big recycling bin that we put all of the above into. Alex goes on to explain this history, and how single-stream led to the U.S.'s contamination crisis. When recycling started, you know, in, in the 70s in a handful of communities, and in the 80s in, in a lot more communities, and into the 90s, it was really a community-driven program. So there was a lot of nonprofits running these, there's a lot of 
municipal run programs. So everything, there was a lot of community control and the reasons were clear why recycling was happening. It was to, you know, mostly environmental benefit. A lot of people talked about saving landfill space at the time was the big issue. But it was, you know, what we recycled was based on what markets existed to use that material to make a new product and how we collected that material, which was usually source separated. So, you know, when I started in recycling, there were 12 sorts at the curb. So the drivers would sort the glass by color into the truck and keep the metal separate from the plastic, separate from the paper. And that was all go back to the facility. There was, you know, I think at the time we had less than 5% residual rate, but probably closer to like 2% residual rate because the drivers could see in the bin when they pick the material up and leave behind anything that wasn't recyclable. And then at the facility, you just kind of had to sort through it to get out the few contaminants, but bail it up, send it to an end market that was able to use that product for a new, to make something new that decreased the need to extract new resources. So it was really amazing. The independent community-based way recycling started kept residual rates incredibly low. Haulers, or people who pick up trash, were more diligent about separating their recycling, making the number of residuals in trash, as Alex said, be between 2 and 5% in some cases. But as international companies began to eye up this community-run success story, things started to change. In the 90s, there was this consolidation of the industry that occurred. You know, the multinational haulers, waste management, Republic, they bought up a lot of the independent haulers. And at the time, you know, people said, oh, this is great. Recycling is becoming mainstream. We can take a step back and let the industry handle it. But really what happens is as recycling moved away from nonprofits and away from government-run programs to these multinational haulers, the focus moved from environmental benefit to maximizing profits to shareholders. And so haulers were really good at collecting material efficiently. And so they wanted to apply that model to recycling. And so they moved to single stream collection where you could have everything mixed together in one cart, collected in an automated truck. The driver doesn't even get out of the truck. All of a sudden, the core of recycling was no longer sustainability. It was a billion dollar business. However, changing economics wasn't the publicized explanation as to why America was making the switch to single stream. Both manufacturing and waste management companies took advantage of America's desire for convenience to warp recycling to their benefit, all while appearing environmentally friendly in the process. The truth is that switching to single stream significantly increased residual rates. The industry's push to make disposal more convenient made Americans care less about what they threw into that big bin, which spiked contamination. Everything became more about convenience than impact. And there's this mentality in the United States that if something isn't convenient, people won't do it. Meanwhile, at the same time, you know, plastic packaging was taking off. There was a proliferation of all sorts of different types of materials. You know, we used to buy ketchup in glass bottles. Now you go to the store, you can't find a glass bottle. It's a plastic bottle. Now it's moving to this weird flexible packaging as these manufacturers were coming out with more and more types of plastics, they realized the importance of, of those plastics needing to be accepted in recycling programs for people to, to want to continue to consume them, where there's a disconnection between what we put at the curb and what manufacturers really want and need to make new products. And then the residents or you know, just people, the recyclers themselves, get that feedback, hey, I can put this in my recycling bin so I don't need to rethink what I'm buying. So there's a, a loss of accountability and transparency 
in the marketplace that has really come to light recently as China bans the imports of recycling. For decades, it seemed like the American waste industry had it made. They cut back costs by switching to single stream and made a profit off constantly selling to China. But as Alex mentioned earlier, China changed a lot over those 40-some years. China developed a middle class so large and, thanks to activist films like Plastic China, so environmentally minded that they were able to replace their need for the U.S.'s highly contaminated materials. The impact on the U.S. economy was devastating. All of a sudden, the market we were exporting some 50% of our products to vanished. National Sword had such a large impact on the market that it drove down the price of recycled materials, regardless of whether you were selling to China or not. So even if you weren't exporting to China, it's impacted everyone in the recycling industry in terms of really lowering the value of, you know, a ton of material that's recycled today is is worth maybe $25, $35, where three or four years ago it was $80 to $100. So it's gone down quite a bit and changed the economics of recycling. Privatized recycling got so dirty through single stream that top buyers no longer wanted to trade with the U.S. Now, I know this seems like a lot of talk about money, and I mean, realistically, as long as we're being sustainable, then profit should be an afterthought, right? Unfortunately, we're also not being sustainable. Despite how good we feel when we toss those Amazon boxes or those jars of peanut butter into the recycling bin, that pride doesn't translate into anything meaningful. According to Jenna Jambeck, an environmental engineering professor at the University of Georgia, nationwide, only 9% of recyclable waste is actually recycled. 12% burn, and the rest is landfill. This is because if the materials are contaminated, they often either need to be landfilled or burned. Nevertheless, National Sword left a giant slash in the U.S. waste industry. Cities and municipalities whose waste contracts expired around the time of National Sword found themselves in a frenzy. Let's take a look at Philadelphia, who was one of those cities. Originally, Philly had a contract with the company Republic Services, where they could sell recyclable waste for $67.35 a ton. And for Philly, this was a win-win. They had someone to pick up and remove their waste from the city, which is a service, and made a profit at the same time. However, International Soar, the value of plastics plummets, and Republic as a company still needs to turn a profit. So when Republic was renegotiating its contract with Philly, All of a sudden, they were asking the city to pay $170 to pick up each ton of plastic. What was once a lucrative deal for the city turned into a huge expense. In the spring of 2019, Philadelphia City Council did something extraordinary. To soften the blow of their new expensive waste contract, they successfully voted to send 50% of their recyclables to a nearby incinerator to be burned. This means that you could be a Philly resident who's super sustainable, always properly recycles, composts, the whole gambit, and you may not have ever known that half of whatever you threw into that bin was never going to be recycled. The way our government manages waste resembles the way we as individuals treat waste. We like to keep it out of sight, out of mind. But while most decisions the government makes don't get headlines in the press, this decision was still highly unusual. It's not like trash incinerators don't burn plastic. As Jenna Jambeck made clear, our trash cans are filled with plastics that technically shouldn't be there. 
What's unique about Philly's decision is that instead of burning recyclables by accident, the city is burning plastics deliberately. One of the things Alex Janovich explained to me in our interview was that typically, although laws vary between states, you're not allowed to deliberately separate recyclables at the source and bring it to an incinerator to be burned. A policy like this would not only be dishonest, but also residents would be paying for a recycling fee for nothing to actually get recycled. Typically, this is not allowed to occur, but National Sword was seen as such an extenuating circumstance that the city of Philadelphia burned half of its recyclables for months without most of its residents knowing. Logan Weld, a lawyer with the Philadelphia Clean Air Council, feels that the green fence and National Sword should be seen less as an extenuating circumstance and more as a wake-up call. I think the best thing that that happened to the world, and one of the reasons why if we're ever going to solve climate change and the emergency that we're facing is China's green fence, probably did more than than anything else. Recycling has always been, I'm trying to think of a polite way to say this, um, it's, it's always been just like this big magic type act that, that America has has put on and, and corporations really have put on. There was never an encouragement from companies or from municipalities or the consumer to reduce that packaging because we had this fail safe, this really nice thing in our minds that we were doing something for the world by recycling and say, oh, you get all this junk, you get all this plastic and cardboard and you get a package from Amazon and you're really excited for it, but don't worry, you're gonna put all of it in the recycling bin and it's all gonna be really happy and green and sustainable. Well, that's all a lie. If dealt with correctly, plastic is recyclable. But what most people forget is that recycling is not the first and best way to be sustainable. The grade school motto is reduce, reuse, then recycle. So yes, companies like Coca-Cola and Nestle make their products recyclable, but they also make us buy a new container for our beverage every time we want one. Companies can stand on the pillars of recycling to brand themselves as green and sustainable, while in reality, 90% of it will just end up in the streets, the ocean, landfill, or burned. To make matters worse, plastic, while reusable, is not sustainable to make. Diane Sicotti, an associate professor of sociology at Drexel University, studies the quiet link between the fracking of natural gas and plastic production. To create 99% of plastics, you need chemicals from either oil or gas. In her work titled From Cheap Ethane to a Plastic Planet, Regulating an Industrial Global Production Network, Professor Sicotti has honed in on the chemical ethane, which is often retrieved from the fracking of natural gas. Fracking is a process where companies drill down into the earth and start blasting it with a mix of water and other liquids to release the gas, which in this case is ethane. Sakoti emphasizes that the environmental cost of ethane can be immense, noting that fracking has been found to contaminate wells of water and even cause minor earthquakes. But one of the grander points of Sakoti's work is this. Single-stream recycling has kept the demand for plastic high. The high need for ethane to create all this plastic is generating enough of a profit margin for fracking companies to sustain themselves and resist the national movement to phase out fossil fuels and transition to green energy. Sakoti writes, quote, Cheap ethane serves a double economic purpose. It allows the profit margin from fracking to remain acceptable to gas corporations in the face of overproduction, low gas prices, and even a phase-out of fossil fuels. And it also enhances the profitability of plastic manufacturing by decreasing the cost of raw materials. 
The failure of recycling in America has fed into itself. It's now being used as a means to mass-produce single-use packaging and sustain the fossil fuel industries that creates them. And as Logan mentioned, this plastic has to go somewhere. The fact is, you know, now we realize most of that recycling was probably just either going over to China and, and getting burned or winding up in the ocean. Because look, when a lot of these corrupt containers were getting into China, they would just dump a lot of that into the ocean afterwards. So a lot of the plastic that we do now see is probably plastic that we all put into our recycling bin five years ago that we thought was gonna get turned into a t-shirt. Actually, it's gonna wind up in the ocean probably. In the ocean or in the city of Chester. Remember that incinerator Philly sent 50% of its plastics to? That's the Covana incinerator, the same one that Chester residents like Zulina have been fighting for decades. Even after powerful waves of activism, as seen in the last episode, these incinerators have been able to survive in the 21st century by tricking the government and the public into thinking they are a green, sustainable science. Formerly, the Chester incinerator is called a resource recovery facility. Other facilities like it refer to themselves as waste to steam. While these names suggest the facility's primary purpose is to create energy or recycle resources from waste, that is not necessarily the case. Covenus Incinerator works like this. The company takes in a waste stream, say trash or plastics from Philly, it burns it to make steam, converts that steam into energy, and separates the residual ash between what's toxic and what's recoverable, i.e. recyclable. Usually the recovered materials are metals that can survive incineration, such as steel. Alex Danovich explains why companies like Covanta make the majority of their money from taking in waste, or tip fees, rather than selling energy. People might think Covan is in an energy business. They're not. They're in the disposal business. They don't even want high-value BTU. They don't really want recyclables because they're only permitted to, to have a certain amount of BTUs generated at their, their incinerator. So if they take these really high-burning plastics and run it through there, it limits the amount of tons they can bring through there. And they're making much more money on that $62 a ton tip fee than they are on the energy they produce. To clarify, BTU stands for British Thermal Unit. It is just a measurement of heat. Plastics burn hotter than traditional garbage, meaning Covanta has to slow down their waste stream by burning less material at once. Alex's argument is that Covanta is not making their fortune off generating a lot of energy. They're making it from simply taking in waste. When a facility will take in all of your waste under the guise of being a sustainable resource recovery facility, it's easier for people to be okay with not actually recycling their trash. This is a rhetorical battle that Zuline herself is all too familiar with. Every last bit of it is, is propaganda. It's a marketing plan. I'll give you a perfect example. This machine here, this burner, oh, this incinerator, was never pitched to this community that it was an incinerator. In fact, they would get downright indignant with us when we would call it an incinerator tried to make us feel as though we were stupid. Oh no, have banging on a desk, everything. This is a resource recovery facility. Okay, well, what are you recovering? Please tell me what you're recovering. Oh, well, we take the viable metal out of the waste stream, but how do you get the metal? What do you do to get down to the metal? You burn, right? 
dust incinerate. So it went from resource recovery facility to, oh no, it's, it's now it's a trash to steam facility because that seems to be more palatable to the general public who understands that incineration is bad. If you ask them, they'll tell you don't nothing come out of that stack but basically steam. The same is like a shower. The question was just posed them, would you tell your child to go up there and stand over top of that? It took the man 20, 30 seconds to answer the question. Then it was, oh yeah. Okay, well let me see it happen. Let me see it happen. It went from trash to steam. Now the new terminology is waste to energy. It's all propaganda and marketing. I believe there's no intention by any of these waste companies to recycle at all. Absolutely not. Absolutely none. That diminishes their waste stream. So whatever they can do to ensure that they have a steady waste stream, that's what they will do. And in doing that, you've made a decision that there will not be a zero waste policy. There will not be a real concerted effort to recycle. Why can't we have a recycling facility here where they make sure that things are properly washed and dried and can be reused. Because the waste industries have made sure that recycling would not be profitable for a community or a business owner to start a, a recycling center. They made sure that the market is not there for it to be profitable. Unfortunately, the idea that resource recovery facilities are a sustainable form of dealing with trash is far from the truth. In fact, some environmental experts argue that they are worse than landfilling. Not only are these facilities often the largest polluter in their area, they produce a large amount of toxic ash that still needs to be landfilled. So the notion that by burning waste it goes away and fully prevents landfilling is false. Meet Dante Swinton, an environmental researcher and community organizer with the Energy Justice Network. Dante is based in Baltimore, where they have been fighting a trash incinerator owned by the company Willibrator. The incinerator is the largest standalone polluter in the city. You're not just creating steam. You're going to create the pollution that's going to come out the smokestack. You're going to create this bottom ash that's less toxic than the fly ash that's uh, going around in the smokestack. But... Again, as you said, after the combustion process, you got to get rid of that ash, and that ash is toxic. And you're still going to end up with the toxins that didn't get uh, sent into the air and uh, had got focused in the ash in the end. So there's no real safety there. Plus, it's weird how they like have blinders, especially Willowbrader here, and maybe it's elsewhere, to this idea. It's like, oh, you know, well, if you can't burn it, you got to bury it, and we got to stop that. And it's like, there's seem to be no other options or avenues that they go off because they know that the only way they can prop themselves up to make it sound like they're the only other solution than burying your trash. But when you go into a landfill, the plastic's not going to decompose. It's not releasing CO2. It's just sitting there. <laughs> yeah, but it's the organic matter that will decompose, and that's the methane and other issues or what have you, and uh, and the leachate from all the uh, the organics breaking down. They have tried to to really make themselves as the only solution um, beyond landfilling, and it's just not true. We will circle back to these alternatives and solutions later on in this series, but what Dante is alluding to is the concept of a zero-waste economy. The Zero Waste International Alliance. 
defines zero waste as, quote, the conservation of all resources by means of responsible production, consumption, reuse, and recovery of products, packaging, and materials without burning and with no discharges to land, water, or air that threaten the environment or human health. So, by definition, waste incinerators and zero waste economies do not mix. And that's why it can get confusing when you look at the news and you see cities with zero waste goals continue to sign long-term incineration contracts. Take New York City, for example. In 2013, the city signed a 20-year incineration contract with Covanta. If renewed, the contract could be extended another 10 years without negotiation, so until 2043. Things get confusing when New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio comes out in 2015, so two years after the contract was signed, and announces the city's goal to reach zero waste by 2030. New York City has not made much progress towards this goal. Politico reporters Sally Goldenberg and Danielle Morio report that de Blasio has abandoned the zero waste pledge, stating that along with these detrimental waste contracts, the city's recycling rate is still 50% below where it needs to be to even have a chance of reaching zero waste. According to a former EPA official, New York City has the lowest big city recycling rate in the country. While mayors like de Blasio may think that zero waste is possible by 2030 because they can potentially get out of a deal, you've already destroyed a lot of the economic incentive there was to cut back waste during the deal. Many waste contracts protect the company by ensuring the incinerator will get paid regardless of how much waste is produced. So at a point in which the amount you're paying for waste pickup is fixed, there's little urgency beyond just keeping your word to actually cut back waste production by 2030. Paying flat fees for processing waste is inherently not sustainable. When incinerators were first making their pitch to move into communities and process their waste, not only did they frame themselves as sustainable, but they sometimes promoted local recycling programs to prove their dedication to the environmental cause. When I was doing research at the Delaware County Historical Society, located in the heart of Chester, I stumbled upon an old Westinghouse newsletter from 1984. I guess they had a few saved from when the incinerator was being built. The newsletter was promoting the construction of a nearby waste incinerator, claiming it would help solve the ocean's trash pollution problem. But more pertinently, they have an entire section dedicated to their stance on recyclables. They argue that recycling is integral to total waste management and that they are going to support local efforts to recycle in host communities. As you would expect from a corporate newsletter, these points were clearly just rhetoric in the long run. The irony is that not only have incinerators not helped offset ocean pollution or lightened our reliance on fossil fuels, many of them now burn plastics. Despite this subversion of sustainability, under EPA guidelines, burning plastics can still be considered a form of recycling. Dante is still fighting this semantic battle in Baltimore, despite their trash incinerator accounting for 36% of the city's total air pollution. Any city that believes an incinerator is a part of their zero waste goal is wrong. The state of Maryland is one of those 23 states that considers it renewable energy, and we came very, very close to getting it out of uh, our renewable portfolio standard this previous session. Hopefully, it finally gets over the hump uh, next year. This idea that you need to commit a five-year contract to these dirty facilities is ridiculous. And it's just very frustrating that Philly did it just recently. Boston did it just recently when they could have been leaders in zero waste. And they chose to half commit to zero waste and half depend on these incinerators. So All of these problems, the disposal crisis, the contaminating materials, the air pollution... 
The U.S. has been able to ship these problems to China and keep waste the same way we always have, in the dark. But just as one snowy day doesn't negate the existence of climate change, a few days of good air quality or clean streets doesn't negate our trash problem. Attorney Logan Weld notes the eerie transition that's occurring. I think in, in Philly, it's pretty good also right now. But generally, you're not going to have good air quality when you have that many facilities that are spewing out hundreds and hundreds of pounds of noxious chemicals. Uh, I mean, poison. I mean, they're really just poisoning the air. And, you know, we, we need industry and often, and this kind of gets into recycling and waste, but so often, and especially the last like 50 or 60 years, we've sent a lot of our air pollution overseas to China. Logan is making a larger point about how we treat our waste and coincidingly our pollution. No one wants to be near a dump or a trash incinerator. It's the classic non-my-backyard mentality. That's why cities like Philadelphia and suburbs like where I live outside of Chester pay so much just to get the stuff away from us. For a long time, we could just toss it over to China and forget about it. But once China was gone, America laid at a crossroads. Do we reform the way we dispose of waste or do we just find the new China? Unfortunately, I wasn't the only one who took the right to Chester in 2019. I said earlier, you know, Covanta has become our China. You know, facilities in America now are having to realize and accept the trash that we are producing in this country. And it's, it's a wake-up call for many municipalities throughout this country. In the past, we all thought that we had a, a quote-unquote away, and China was the away for most of our stuff, whereas now Covanta is now the away. And now we're seeing people that we, that we know or live near or we might have relatives being impacted by the waste that we are creating. Covanta and other companies are now having to deal, American companies are now having to deal with the huge amount of waste that we're creating as a society. And it's more impactful. When you know, you know, hey, I've got a cousin who lives in Chester and five of his neighbors just came home from the doctor and they realized they've all got cancer. That really hits home. We don't hear those types of stories from people in China. As China draws their national sword, Chester is still forging theirs. Thank you for listening to episode three of Chester is Rising, an investigative expose. Next episode, we're back in present day Chester to investigate how a rift between activists is setting the stage for a new battle over Chester's air. Writing and reporting for this podcast was done by the voice you're hearing right now. Massive thank you to the Brooklyn duo for granting me permission to use their beautiful performance of The Swan. Your generosity is deeply, deeply appreciated. You can find them on YouTube at Brooklyn Duo or on their website, brooklynduo.com. Thank you also to Shelby Road Productions for engineering this project, as well as Out of Sight Stories for supporting the investigation. <laughs>